Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for giving us your word. Father, we thank you for this glorious story, this history that you have brought about, culminating in sending your son into the world. Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you for the salvation he has won for us through his life of perfect obedience, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection on the third day. Father, would you point us to him today? Would you strengthen our faith in him? Would you make us more and more like him? Maybe more and more faithfully serve him. This we pray in his name. Amen. We just read this morning the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew begins his gospel with what you call a genealogy, or we might call it a family tree. Now, modern readers uh, might see this as a really odd way to begin a book. Uh, modern readers might even see it as a waste of time. What could be more boring than a genealogy? Uh, how dull. Uh, every author knows you're supposed to open a book with something catchy, something that will grab the reader's attention and make him want to continue going through the book, right? Uh, every modern reader knows that. Well, uh, I would say that uh, actually Matthew has done that. He has given us something really catchy to grab our attention. And if we miss that, if we think this is an odd way to open a book or even a, a dull, boring way to open a book, the problem really is with us. See, Matthew's genealogy uh, actually is full of all kinds of amazing things. Uh, every name in this genealogy tells a story. Uh, Every name in this genealogy tells a story that is important to Matthew's gospel. In some way, every name in this genealogy tells us something Matthew wants us to know about the story of Jesus. Uh, Andrew Peterson, the Christian artist, uh, writer, musician, saw the importance of this passage and he turned it into a song. Kids, I bet a lot of you know that. If not, ask your kids to look up the song uh, by Andrew Peterson Matthew's begots. The begots are important. Andrew Peterson recognized that and put them to music. The names here are important. Every name tells a story. Even the ones that are hard to pronounce are part of telling this story. Now, I'm not going to go through every name here this morning. There's obviously not time for that. But I do want to pick out some of the more significant names here and show you what they are doing in Matthew's genealogy, the the, the purpose they serve. Some of these well-known names tell well-known stories, and they help us better understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. Even some of the more obscure names actually shed light on who Jesus is and what he came to do. Because really, that's the whole point of this genealogy. It's to introduce us to Jesus. Matthew is really introducing us to Jesus. And so the whole point of the genealogy is to identify Jesus and explain who Jesus is. You could say, this genealogy is really Christology. Uh, This genealogy contains a Christology. It teaches us about Christ. In verse 1, Jesus is said to be the son of David and the son of Abraham, that's foundational. Uh, Matthew at the very beginning has picked out the two most important figures that we can use to identify and understand who Jesus is, David and Abraham. Of course, David and Abraham are two of the major figures in Israel's history. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, and David was Israel's greatest king. 
The genealogy starts with Abraham because Israel starts with Abraham. And God promised to Abraham a land and a son. Those promises God makes to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, and then he, he unfolds those promises and adds to them and elaborates them in various ways in Genesis 15 and 17 and 22 uh, and so on. But those promises God makes to Abraham of a land and of a son are foundational. The land, of course, was Judea, the promised land, and the son was Isaac. But what Matthew is showing us here is that in Jesus, those promises come to an even greater fulfillment than they did within the horizon of the old covenant. Indeed, the land promise, we find, has been transformed into the whole world. That was already indicated in Genesis and anticipated in Genesis. But it, come, it becomes explicit in the New Testament that really what God promised Abraham was not just one little strip of land over in the Middle East, but actually what he promised Abraham is the whole world. Think of Romans 4.13 where Paul says the promise to Abraham is that he would be heir of the world. The promised land was just a down payment on that. The beginnings of that. Ultimately, God promised to Abraham the world. That's what he really promised to Abraham. That's what the land promise really is all about. The whole world is Abraham's promised land. Of course, if... Uh, Jesus, so, and that promise, of course, comes to fulfillment in Jesus in ways that we'll see. But the son promise does as well. Think about this. If Jesus is the true son of Abraham, what does that mean? It means he is the true Isaac. Think about the story of Abraham and the, the story of Isaac's birth. Isaac's birth was miraculous. Abraham and Sarah were too old to have a child. They had been barren all those many years. God said, you'll have a son. When Sarah heard that, she laughed. And actually, that's what the name Isaac means, laughter. That's why he got his name, because Sarah laughed when she heard this promise. Her womb was dead, and Abraham was as good as dead as well. But the God who gives life to the dead and the God who calls into existence things that do not exist granted them a son, a miracle son, a miracle child, Isaac. But then an interesting thing happened as Isaac grew up. What happened? Well, uh, it's called the binding of Isaac story. Uh, God told Abraham to take your son, your only son, your beloved son, Isaac, take him on a three days journey up the mountain. And there God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice him. An astounding command, not just because God seems to be commanding child sacrifice, but because God is commanding Abraham to sacrifice the child, the son, this son who was born so miraculously. This son who was the one who would bear the promises and whom the promises would come to fulfillment. And now God wants him to be killed? How can that be? Of course, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, Abraham reasoned that if he was really going to put Isaac to death, that God would raise him up. That God would resurrect him even as he resurrected Sarah's womb. And so Abraham, by faith, obeys. He takes Isaac up uh, up the mountain and he is about to sacrifice Isaac in accord with God's command, and then at the very last moment, God stays Abraham's hand. The angel of the Lord appears, spares Isaac, and provides a ram instead for the sacrifice. But if Jesus has been identified here as the son of Abraham, what does it mean? It means he is the true Isaac, one greater than Isaac. And so you know now what's going to happen right here. 
Matthew has already tipped us off as to where this story is going to go. Jesus is going to be the true Isaac, which means he will be sacrificed. The father will sacrifice him for the sins of the world. He's going to be offered as a sacrifice. So we can see how these promises to Abraham really are all bound up in Jesus. They find their yes and amen in Jesus. The promise of a land that becomes the world and the promise of a son who becomes a sacrifice. But according to Matthew's genealogy, Jesus is not only the son of Abraham, he's also the son of David. So think about that for just a moment. David was the greatest king of Israel, uh, the most glorious king and the most glorious period in Israel's history happened under David's reign. What did God promise to David? Well, a lot of things, but in 2 Samuel 7, we find what we uh, usually call the Davidic covenant, the covenant God makes with David. And this is what God promises God says to David, I will set up your son after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Matthew tells us here, Jesus is the true son of David whose kingdom is forever, whose kingdom will be an eternal kingdom and he will build a house for God. And of course, we know from the rest of the New Testament, the house that Jesus builds for God, the temple he builds for God is the church. We are that house. God lives and dwells within us and among us. Now, of course, as with the promises God made to Abraham, there was a kind of immediate fulfillment uh, of these promises within the Old Testament itself. Uh, David's immediate son was Solomon. Solomon is the son of David in that context. But what does that mean? That means we can view Jesus as a greater Solomon. Just as when greater than Isaac is found in Jesus, so when greater than Solomon is here in Jesus. So again, think about what Solomon did. Solomon built the temple as a house for God. That's what Jesus will do. Solomon excelled in wisdom. But whereas Solomon put a heavy yoke on the people, according to 1 Kings chapter 12, Jesus says in Matthew 11, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Jesus has a wisdom that excels the wisdom of Solomon. He is a king better than Solomon, one greater than Solomon. Solomon was given a gift of wisdom to speak in Proverbs and in parables. Jesus speaks in wise Proverbs and parables as well, but Jesus goes beyond Solomon as the true son of David. He does not just speak wisdom from God, he is wisdom from God. He embodies wisdom from God. He is the wisdom of God incarnate. So Matthew starts out telling us that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And that means that uh, these identities of Isaac and Solomon are foundational to understanding who Jesus is. But there's still more. There are other names here that point us to Jesus' identity. Jacob is listed here. In this genealogy, Jacob, of course, is a major figure in the book of Genesis. Jesus must be the greater Jacob. Well, how so? Well, think about Jacob's life in the book of Genesis. Jacob spends most of his life wrestling with wicked men. His father, Isaac, actually falls into sin, into not just physical blindness, but moral blindness. Uh, his, his cousin, Lot, tries to, to cheat him. Uh, out of all kinds of things. He just he, he, he has to deal with one wicked man after another. He spends most of his life wrestling with wicked men. And then one night, in Genesis chapter 32, 
we come to the climactic moment of Jacob's life, and he wrestles with God. He wrestles with God in the dark all through the night. And at the end of the night, he's given a blessing because he has prevailed, but he's also given a limp. He's given a blessing because he's wrestled with God and prevailed, but he's also given a leg wound. So he will limp for the rest of his life. Well, so it is with Jesus. Jacob points us to Jesus. Jesus wrestles with his wicked brethren in Israel all throughout his ministry. That's what Matthew and his gospel is going to record. Jesus wrestling with these wicked leaders in Israel, these wicked people in the nation of Israel, wicked brethren. But like Jacob, he will prevail. Like Jacob, he will prevail through suffering. Jesus will limp to victory, wounded but triumphant. The wounded but triumphant warrior. That's Jacob. That's pointing us to Jesus. Boaz is included in this genealogy. Boaz, uh, of course, we know from the book of Ruth. uh, He is included in Matthew's family tree, Matthew's genealogy here. What do we know about Boaz? Well, Boaz is introduced to us in the book of Ruth as a mighty man of valor. As a great warrior, a courageous and faithful man, a strong and noble man. And what does he do through the course of of the book of Ruth? Well, he shows Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is also a widow. Boaz shows them great kindness, great hospitality. And ultimately, he marries Ruth under the provisions of the Leveret Law, which is an interesting institution in the Old Testament law, where if a woman lost her husband, a near relative could marry her and raise up a son for the deceased to preserve the family name and the family inheritance. Boaz marries Ruth under that leveret institution in really what becomes, uh, by the time you get to the end of the book of Ruth, one of the most beautiful stories in all of literature. Boaz, of course, points us to Jesus, the mighty man of valor, the great hero who shows kindness and hospitality in uh, even greater ways. But it's not just the great heroes that are included here. Heroes that, you could say, provide a blueprint for what Jesus will come to do, a, a sort of template for understanding the work that Jesus will carry out, what his ministry will look like. There are also great sinners here. Not just great heroes, but great sinners as well, who remind us why Jesus will do what he has come to do. What has Jesus come to do? He has come to rescue us from sin. And Matthew's genealogy shows us that as well. Of course, all of the names we've already mentioned, Abraham, David, and the others, They were all sinners, so we could already glean that from the fact that they had their failings. But some of the people listed in this genealogy, uh, their their lives were remarkably sinful. Sinful in uh, huge ways uh, that make this point inescapable. So take Solomon's successor, Rehoboam. Rehoboam is included in the genealogy here. What did Rehoboam do? Well, he came after Solomon, uh, and he was an arrogant man. He was a very arrogant man. And because of his arrogance, Israel was divided into two. He split the nation of Israel with the northern and southern tribes breaking apart and then falling into civil war. Rehoboam raised taxes and put even heavier burdens, an even heavier yoke on all the people of the land, foolishly disregarding the counsel he was given by the older 
uh, advisors that he had. The older advisors said, you ought to serve the people. And he said, no, I'm going to show the people how strong I am, how, how tough I am. And, and ultimately, of course, this backfires as the kingdom is ripped apart. This foolish show of strength on his part, this arrogance on his part, destroys the nation of Israel, dividing it against itself. Even more notoriously, Manasseh is included in this list. Manasseh, that name would jump out at you like Hitler. You know, if Hitler was in somebody's family tree, you might want to cover that up. Well, Manasseh was sort of an ancient Hitler, one of the Hitlers of the ancient world. Manasseh is included in this list. Matthew's not interested in doing a cover-up. He's not interested in airbrushing the family tree of Jesus and making it look prettier than it really is. Manasseh was regarded as the most wicked king Judah ever had, which really is saying something. They had a lot of wicked kings. But Manasseh was the worst of the worst, the most wicked of the wicked. He was an incredibly wicked man. He reversed the godly reforms of his uh, of his godly father, Hezekiah. He reinstituted the worship of pagan gods in Judah. Manasseh himself participated in the worship of Moloch, uh, which included sacrificing young children uh, in the flames. Uh, Manasseh persecuted faithful prophets who spoke out against his evil. And yes, at the end of his long 55-year reign of terror, he did repent. There is that. But the damage to the covenant nation had been done. Manasseh lived most of his life as an incredibly wicked man, uh, inflicting all kinds of damage on the nation, doing all kinds of wicked things, leading the people into ever greater wickedness. See, what's the point? Even the greatest of sinners are included here so we will know Jesus came to forgive sinners. Jesus came that sins might be forgiven. He came to give hope and salvation and forgiveness to all. The fact that Manasseh is included in the family tree of the Messiah is Matthew's way, again, of tipping us off where he's going with this. Jesus is coming not for the righteous, but for sinners. Not for those who think they have no need of a Savior, but precisely for those who know they do. For those who seem too far gone. This is Matthew's way of saying to us, never think your sin is too great for Jesus to deal with. Never think you've sinned in such a way that you cannot be part of his family anymore. No matter what you've done. Even if you are as wicked as Manasseh, Jesus will find a place for you in his family. If you only come to him... And trust in him. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Matthew already, through the genealogy, is showing us this. By giving us this list of saints and sinners, of heroes and villains. He, on the one hand, is giving us a blueprint for what Jesus will come and do. But on the other hand, showing us why he's got to come and do it. Some figures here have life stories that foreshadow the ministry of Jesus. Others have life stories that are vivid reminders of why he must carry out this ministry. Some names foreshadow salvation. Other names reveal what we must be saved from. But there's something else going on here. Uh, other interesting features of, the, of this genealogy. There are four women mentioned in this genealogy. Four women uh, which is not totally unprecedented in the uh, in the scriptures, but it's still a little bit unusual. Four women, and obviously they've been carefully selected because there's four and only four women mentioned here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba are included in this 
genealogy. Now, why is this? Well, um, some have uh, speculated perhaps these women are included because each one is involved in some kind of scandal or at least perceived scandal. Now, I say perceived because actually, in most cases, these women actually didn't do anything wrong, uh, though some people might have thought so. Uh, in the case of Tamar, you see that. Tamar was the daughter, uh, daughter-in-law of, uh, of Judah, and she married one of Judah's sons. He died, married another one. Uh, the provisions of the Leveret Law, interestingly, were in effect. But finally, Judah was not going to give her another son because every son she married kept dying. Well, she deceives Judah and seduces Suda, Judah into uh, playing the role of the Leveret husband himself. And so a seed is raised up in place of her deceased husband. It's kind of a sordid story in the book of Genesis. But when Judah is confronted about his action, about how he was deceived and seduced by her, Judah admits that Tamar is in the right. He says, she is more righteous than I. She's vindicated. And it's a, it's a, it's a very sordid story. But Tamar is the one vindicated. Judah is the one condemned by what happens. Judah was the one who failed. Tamar was acting in faith. What about Rahab? Uh, Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho, uh, but when the Israelite spies came in, she repented, and she transferred her loyalty from the gods of Jericho to the God of Israel. She feared this God. She professed her allegiance to this God. She hid the spies, and she sent them out the other way, and then protected them with an act of righteous deception when the king of Jericho came looking for them. And so what happened to Rahab? Well, when the city was destroyed, she and her family were saved. And indeed, we find that Rahab is commended multiple times in the New Testament for her faith, her working faith, her saving faith. She was a righteous woman, associated with scandal, yes, but she's righteous, she's vindicated. What about Ruth? Well, Ruth was a widow who came to Israel with her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, and uh, she goes out to glean in the field so that uh, she and her mother-in-law will be able to survive, and uh, she happens upon the field of Boaz. Well, when it, she comes to find out that Boaz is actually a close relative of her deceased husband, uh, Ruth and Naomi concoct a plan. They will uh, essentially propose marriage to uh, to Boaz. Ruth will go and propose a leveret marriage to Boaz. Again, it's not a normal kind of situation. Uh, so Ruth goes to Boaz in the middle of the night, lays down at his feet, and essentially communicates to him, you are a close relative. Will you play the part of a leveret husband? And while there's a few twists and turns in the plot, ultimately Boaz does so. Ruth's actions could be understood in a somewhat scandalous kind of way. I think if you read the story properly, they're not. Uh, she, too, is vindicated. She does the right thing, uh, and all of this is in accordance with the law. Uh, but there may be a hint of scandal in the way some people viewed what she did. And then there's Bathsheba, who commits adultery with David, but David is clearly uh, the one who bears the greater guilt in that situation. He is the one who exploits her in that situation, using his greater age and his greater power to take advantage of her. He's really the predator. I'm not saying Bathsheba did not commit sin herself, but David is clearly the one who has committed this this, uh, great act of uh, covenant-breaking and rebellion, not only sleeping with Bathsheba, but also having her husband murdered after it turns out she is with child. 
So why are these four women included? Well, it could be because there is uh, either scandal or perceived scandal with each one. And that would even fit with Mary as a kind of fifth woman in this genealogy, whose pregnancy is also perceived as scandalous, even though it's really not. She hasn't really committed sexual immorality. Uh, she has been given a child by the working of the Holy Spirit, but certainly was perceived as scandalous, so that would fit with these other women. But I actually think there's something else going on here. There's another thread that links these four women together, and this is really what Matthew is getting at. What do these four women have in common? They are all either Gentiles or they are associated with Gentile households. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabitess. Uh, Bathsheba was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite. He was a Gentile uh, member of David's army. So why does Matthew include these women? Well, because... He's showing us here that the bride of Christ will ultimately include Gentiles. Four Gentile women representing the four corners of the earth, showing us Jesus comes not only to save Israel, but to save the nations. He comes to unite Jew and Gentile into one body, the body of Christ. And these four brides are images of Christ's bride. Think about this. Matthew shows us in this genealogy that Jesus not only has Jewish blood flowing in his veins, but also Gentile blood. He has Canaanite blood flowing in his veins. He has Moabite blood flowing in his veins. And so later in the Gospel of Matthew, when he sheds that blood on the cross, that blood will be shed not only for Jews, but for Gentiles, for Canaanites, Moabites, and every other nation, every other people group, every blood, every race, every tribe, every language will be brought into the family of Jesus, into his kingdom. And in a cultural moment when we are constantly hearing about racism and racial division, what could be more healing than this? The only place where racial reconciliation can truly take place is the cross through the blood of Jesus, where this Savior who has multiracial blood, who has a a multinational background, dies on the cross for the whole world, for the sins of the whole world, for all the peoples of the world. What a beautiful picture. Matthew here is showing us that Jesus is an international Savior, a global Savior. He's built that into the genealogy. And of course, this is always God's plan. Going back to Abraham, we know this is God's plan. In Genesis 12, God announces his promise to bless all the families and and peoples and nations of the world through the seed of Abraham, through the son of Abraham. He's going to bring all of the families of the world into the family of Abraham, which is now the family of Christ, the family of the Messiah. And these women included in the the genealogy foreshadow that. They are down payments on God's plan to include the Gentiles in the Messianic bride and in the Messianic kingdom. Now what's interesting is the Jews themselves were very reluctant to go along with this. When Jesus in the Gospels and his teaching and his ministry indicates that Gentiles are going to be brought into his bride and incorporated into his people, well that's one of the things that generates a lot of opposition to Jesus. 
And when the apostles actually go out and start to make it happen by preaching to the Gentiles, of course, that's also incredibly controversial. In fact, many of the early controversies in the church, you read Galatians 2, the controversy between Paul and Peter, Acts 15, the first church council that is called, they're all addressing this question, this issue. Can the church be an international, multinational, multi-ethnic, multiracial family? And the answer in the New Testament again and again and again is yes, yes, yes. And Matthew has already shown us that. He's shown us where this is going in the genealogy. Matthew's opening genealogy shows us this was the plan all along. And so at the very end of the gospel, in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus gives the great commission to go and baptize and disciple all the nations, the groundwork for that global mission has already been laid in this opening genealogy. The groundwork is already here in the opening verses of Matthew's gospel. See, this genealogy, it's not just dates and dead people. It's not just a a bunch of hard to pronounce names. You you can't even think of this just as a family tree for Jesus. It is prophetic. These names tell stories. They show us what is to come. This genealogy gives us Jesus' ancestors. But you know what? His descendants will be included in this family tree as well. That's really what Matthew is setting us up for. The tree doesn't end with Jesus, the family tree, the family line. It continues on and it expands out to the nations. Matthew's begots continue right down to the present. And so those who have been incorporated into the Messiah's family by the new birth of baptism and by faith, we are now included in the family tree of the Messiah. We are included in the begots. Put every one of your names in there. You're all included in Jesus' family tree. Our names have been added to this list. We are branches on this family tree of the Messiah. Our names and our lives now are to tell the story of Christ as well. Like Manasseh, we are sinners in need of forgiveness. Like the women included here, we are outsiders who have been brought in. Like Boaz, we are growing in valor and courage and kindness and hospitality and faithfulness. Like Jacob, we are struggling and suffering our way to victory. Like Solomon, we are being given wisdom as we seek to play our part in building God's house. We are members of Messiah's family. His DNA is in us. His character is being reproduced in us. But it's not just that the names here tell the story of Jesus and what he's come to do. It's not just that you can pick out the individual names and see how they tell the story of what Jesus is coming to do. The genealogy as a whole also tells a story. The genealogy itself is a kind of narrative. There are these smaller stories within the genealogy represented by the names. But the genealogy as a whole is one big story. It's one mega story that tells us about Jesus, who he is, and what he's come to do. Matthew has arranged this genealogy in a very clever way to show us what Jesus is coming to accomplish. Look at verse 17, the end of this genealogy. Matthew tells us this. He uh, has organized the genealogy into three blocks of 14 generations. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David. 
14 generations from David to the exile, the deportation, and then 14 generations from the exile to Christ. Three blocks of 14 generations. Now, the Bible, when it gives us these kind of numbers, it always invites us to play around with the numbers and see what we can do with them. Numbers in the Bible are symbolic. They carry meaning. They carry weight. Well, three blocks of 14 is also six blocks of seven. That means when Jesus is born, the seventh block of seven is beginning. In other words, when Jesus is born, he inaugurates the seventh seven. Well, what is seven? Seven is the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. It's the number of days in a week going back to the creation account in Genesis chapter one. What is Jesus doing? He is beginning a new creation. He's launching a new creation. He's bringing in Sabbath rest and Sabbath glory. In fact, it's not just any Sabbath. It is a jubilee. In the Old Covenant law, in the Torah, the jubilee year in Israel came after the seventh seven. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. Well, after the seventh seven, after seven times 70 years, there was a jubilee year. And that jubilee was kind of a super Sabbath, a a, a mega Sabbath. What is the Jubilee associated? What is the Sabbath associated with? Well, it's associated with setting slaves free and with canceling debts and, yes, with the end of exile. And so by using the numbers in this way, Matthew is showing us this is what Jesus has come to do, to be the one who cancels the debt of our sin, who sets us free from slavery to sin and death. He's the one who's come to bring an end to exile. Matthew 11, he really sums this up. He says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath. I will give you jubilee. I will give you that seven times seven rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. You will find Sabbath. You will find jubilee for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. See, the Pharisees had put heavy burdens on the people. It's a lot about that in Matthew. Just like Pharaoh had put heavy burdens on the Israelites. Just like Solomon and then especially Rehoboam put heavy burdens and a heavy yoke on the people. But Jesus comes and says, no, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He comes to release us from those burdens. To set us free. To set us free from whatever enslaves us. He comes to cancel all our debts. So we can be free. So, so, so our sins cannot be held against us anymore. This genealogy shows us who Jesus is and what he's come to do. You, you can put it this way. The genealogy shows us what Jesus will do. The rest of the gospel then shows us how he will do it. Culminating with his death and resurrection. But Matthew's not done yet. He has other ways of teaching us this same truth, of telling the same story, even enriching this story. He opens his gospel in verse 1 saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But it could also be translated, this is the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. The genesis of Jesus Christ. The book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. Clearly, again, Matthew wants us to see Jesus makes a new beginning in Israel's history. The age of fulfillment is dawning. The promised kingdom is here. This is a new genesis, a new creation. 
But there's more. That phrase, the book of the Genesis, or the book of beginnings, or the book of the generations, that phrase is actually lifted right out of the book of Genesis itself. That same phrase is found ten times in Genesis. In fact, the whole book of Genesis is structured by that phrase. So, for example, Genesis 5.1 uses the phrase, this is the book of the Genesis of Adam, or this is the book of the generations of Adam. Matthew echoes that because he wants us to know Jesus is not only the son of David and the son of Abraham, he is also the son of Adam, the son of man. He is a new Adam. He is the last Adam. He is inaugurating a new human race. Humanity 2.0 starts here with Jesus. And so it's not surprising that at the end of the gospel, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The first Adam had all authority and dominion over the earth, but he lost it. Now the last Adam gains all that back and then some. He has all dominion not only in the earth, but also in heaven above. But there's a twist, a very interesting twist here. In Genesis, that formula, this is the book of the generations, always introduces descendants. For example, in Genesis 2-4, this is the book of the generations of the heaven and earth. And then it goes on to describe what comes forth from the heaven and earth. Genesis 5-1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then it lists all of Adam's descendants. Genesis 10-1, this is the book of the generations of Noah. And then it goes on to list those who come forth from Noah, those who come from Noah, those who are generated by Noah. And on and on through the book of Genesis. See, in Genesis, that phrase, that formula, always introduces descendants. Those who come from the one named in the formula. It then lists those who come from uh, that figure. But Matthew uses this formula and then introduces ancestors. He lists ancestors rather than descendants. In other words, he's inverted it. He's reversed the way it works. Or has he? I think he's actually making a subtle but crucial point that is also critical to our understanding of the gospel. Jesus is not only a descendant of those listed here, he is also the originator and creator of this line. He is the genesis of this line. This line comes from him. Yes, he comes from this line, but this line also comes from him. If Matthew is using that phrase the same way as Genesis, it must mean that. But how? How can it mean that? How can he be both the descendant of this line and the ancestor, the one this line comes from? How can he be the beginning and the end of Israel's line? Well, this is not the only place in Scripture where we find this kind of riddle. In Isaiah chapter 11, there is a prophecy of the Messiah. And there in that prophecy, Israel is described as a tree. And the tree of Israel has been cut down. That's the exile. Israel has been cut down and there's just a stump left. But the stump's not dead. Isaiah describes that the Messiah will come like a branch from the stump of Jesse. The tree lives on and it's going to be revived in him and it's going to grow into a great tree once again because of this branch that comes forth from the stump of Jesse. But that passage not only calls Jesus a branch that comes forth from the house of Jesse, 
It actually goes on to also describe the Messiah as the root of the tree, the root of Jesse, the one from whom Jesse's house comes. In other words, Isaiah 11 describes the Messiah as the root and branch, root and branch of David's house. How can he be both? Well, I would say Isaiah's riddle is also Matthew's riddle. How can he be root and branch? The fulfillment of Israel's line and the one Israel's line comes from. How can he be both before and after? How can he be both Alpha and Omega? Well, the answer is found in the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and fully man, fully human and fully divine. As man, he is true Israel. He's the son of Abraham and the son of David. He is the descendant of all these Israelites. He is the culmination of Israel's history. He comes from this line. But as divine, he is Israel's God. He is the son of God in the flesh. He is the one who created Israel, who initiated Israel's history. Israel's line comes from him. Yes, he's Israel. He embodies Israel. He is Israel, but he is also Israel's God. He's not only David's son, he's God's son. He's not only the fulfillment of Israel's history, he created Israel. And he initiated that history. He not only fulfills the promises, he made those promises in the first place. It's subtle. You've got to be a careful reader of both Genesis and Matthew to catch this. But I have no doubt Matthew intends in his genealogy to make just this point about the identity of Christ. Jesus is God and man. This genealogy tells the story of Israel. It tells the story of Israel's God. And so it will be with Matthew's gospel as a whole. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, I realize that uh, the year 2020 has been a difficult year. Uh, it's been a difficult year. It's been a year of loss, a year of struggle, a year of hardship. For many, it's been a year of sickness. Uh, many in our own church family have been touched by the sting of death. It's been a difficult year. What hope is there in the midst of the darkness of this year? Well, know this. 2020 has not been a difficult year for God. God is sovereign. God has his reasons for all he does and all he puts us through. And we need to remember everything is unfolding exactly according to God's plan. God has no problems, no struggles, no difficulties. Now, we certainly do. We have all those things. We have problems, we have struggles, we have difficulties. But in the midst of our problems, struggles, and difficulties, knowing God has none is actually a great encouragement. Matthew's genealogy here shows us how to have hope in the midst of hard times. Jesus has come to fulfill God's promises. Because Jesus has come, we're not slaves to sin anymore. We're not slaves to fear anymore. We're not in bondage to death anymore. Anxiety does not need to rule over us. Fear does not need to rule over us. We don't need to despair. We have, and we can find this in Matthew's genealogy and in the rest of his gospel, we can find reasons perpetual reasons for hope, joy, and peace. And this is why the hymns of Advent and Christmas are so full of these things, so full of life and and joy and hope. Those Christmas hymns, those Advent hymns are true year-round. And so what is Matthew through his genealogy saying to us today? He's saying, be of good cheer. 
Jesus has come and he's conquered all of our enemies and he's given us new life. He's made us his new humanity. He's canceled our debts and forgiven our sins. He's cleansed us from all our sins. Hope, joy, peace, comfort, all these things are ours. All these things are ours in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.